What's up, guys? Welcome to episode five of the Krause House podcast. How are you feeling today, dude? Good, man. Five. I was listening to one of our old podcasts, and I remembered that we used to do all the Jersey numbers. Yeah. We've got away, which makes sense given we're in season two. But it does feel like we're missing some sort of call back to the episode five number. No, that's fair. I was thinking about that. And we can't necessarily repeat the Jersey thing because we did that for season one. We'll get a lot of the same players. But yeah, I feel like there there needs to be a, kind of a season two intro thing. It, it feels incomplete without it almost. Yeah, I wonder like what NBA season number five, like who who's the best player from the fifth NBA season? Well, the problem with that is there's going to be a lot of repeats, right? Once you get into the, the later seasons, right? Who's the best player you're going to get? Jordan a lot. I'm going to drop it in the chat for you. It's the Wikipedia of the 1950-51 season, the fifth season of the NBA. The season ended with the Rochester Royals winning the NBA championship, beating the New York Knicks four games to three in the NBA finals. Notable occurrences, the NBA started counting rebounds that year. So that was a big thing. The top draft pick was Chuck Scher legendary by the Boston Celtics. No idea who that is. Top scorer. Any guess without looking on who the top scorer was that season? Who the top scorer was? Yep, 1950, baby. Anything. 1950. It can't be Chuck because he just entered the league. I don't know. It, it's it, It's got to be some uh, like Bill McKnight or something. <laughs> and when I say it, you're going to be like, oh, obviously, but it was George Mike. Uh, okay, the Mike and Drill, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. And then I would like to highlight one other thing here is that the lowest scoring game in NBA history was in the season where the Fort Wayne Pistons defeated the Minneapolis Lakers by a final score of, any guess? Give me something in high 30s. <laughs> 19 to 18. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh my God. Uh, that was George Mikan's team for what it's worth. And it does say this was the catalyst to implement the NBA shot clock a few seasons later. So oh, I'm guessing they were holding the ball okay. against Mikan. Yeah. All right. Give these old timers a little bit of slack. Yeah. No, that was probably baked into the strategy. It was like, get a couple buckets mm-hmm. up and just run the clock out, especially when you're playing a good team. It was actually, wasn't that recently? I want to say five ish years ago where, um, a high school team did that. I think they were playing one of the top teams in the state and they scored early and just held the ball for, yeah. for as, as long as you could. And the final score, I think they lost, but they held the number one team in the state till 15 points or something like that. So that, who knows? That could have been part of the strategy. That they and I found a little blurb on it. So it says they were afraid that so the Fort Wayne Pistons took a lead against basically the MVP of the league, George Mikan. And they were afraid that Mike and would lead a comeback. And so they held the ball and would just pass the ball around without attempting to score with no shot clock invented for them to force the score remained 1918 until the ends game. And that made it the lowest scoring of all time. Can you imagine if anyone from that team saw a clip of Clay Thompson's 35 point quarter, right? They would just, they wouldn't <laughs> know. They were like, this can't be a real thing. No way that this is the same game. One one last fun fact about it. He scored 15. George Mikan scored 15 of the Lakers' 18 points, which means he scored 83.3% of his team's points, setting an all-time record. <laughs> he still has one of the most fundamental drills named after him. So it got to be for there a go. reason. The guy was getting buckets. But shall we hop into the show? Why don't you kick us off? Yeah, let us move on from the 1950 season. Formula One team valuations continue to soar. So this is really just like a check-in into just 
examining a little bit of what's happening in Formula One. And I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. So one is I think F1 team valuations are surprisingly high, at least to me. I know the league and racing is a big deal. I know F1's doing really well. I know the Netflix show has done really well, but I hadn't really looked at the numbers. And so I didn't realize this, but did you happen to know that the top 10 F1 teams are worth somewhere in the order of about $15 billion? Like, was that on your radar or did I just miss this memo? It's recently informed, I would say within the past like year or so that I, I knew that the valuations for some of the top teams were in the billions or at least above one. But like you mentioned, it was only because of Drive to Survive. It's starting to make more mainstream headlines on ESPN and things like that. But if you asked me two years ago or something like that, I would have no idea. Absolutely. Yeah. So Ferrari's number one, Mercedes number two, Red Bull team is number three. Ferrari did 50 million in profit last year. Mercedes did 114, Red Bull only four. Those are numbers certainly on the order of MLB teams. We've often talked about the Pittsburgh Pirates doing somewhere between 50 and 200 million, depending on the year. They're certainly in these ranges of these top performing teams are doing quite well. It's worth noting too, that these revenue streams, I, I dug into this a little bit, they consist of really two main buckets. It's sponsorship and then prize money distributions from Formula One. There's obviously ticket sales and all these other things that go into it as well. But those are the main two buckets. So the question I wanted to ask you is like the thing that we have a bunch of these trends that we try to touch on for all of our different things that we talk about. And it almost feels like F1 is almost opposite to it. And so it had this question of there's these unique benefits of F1 that are materially different than what we often laud the NBA for. And why do you think F1 is able to punch through while being counter to some of the narratives and the trends that we've outlined as being why the NBA is so successful. Any thoughts on that? Why don't you highlight some of those trends? Because I actually think that the thing that jumps out most to me is something that we've been talking about almost at, at nauseum, right? Which is the content. I'd say the Drive to Survive had one of the best trailers. I remember before season one, I watched that thing and got actual chills and I couldn't name one F1 racer, maybe like Michael Schumacher or something like that. And I just remember being, I have to watch this because they talked about the players' backstories actually is a huge reason why people follow. I think very similar to NASCAR, but I think what they've done with the content had a lot to do with the recent pump in valuations. I forget what season they're on. I think maybe four or something like that, but I know that just brought a lot of people into their ecosystem. And we've talked about Welcome to Wrexham doing the same thing. I think NBA very much focused on broadcasting and maybe like more traditional media. But I think having a lot of opportunities for something like that in Netflix is greenfield opportunity for them that I don't think they've quite explored at least as deeply, but maybe perhaps starting to now. So I'd be interested to flip that back on you. It's what are some of those things that you think F1 does opposite? Because content is one that jumped out to me, but are there any others that you thought? Yeah, it's a good question. So let's list them really quick and then I'll touch them on quick, but just as a reminder for folks. So we have technology integration. So AI and machine vision being implemented in these leagues. Simulated immersions or this kind of digital 24-7 Disney World type thing rather than a discrete event. Athlete empowerment, fan engagement, algorithmic media, metric optimization, traditional ownership equals the middleman, sports of the new religion, and a new one, storytelling is king. And so when I think about like fan engagement, We've talked about racing's challenging on that. I guess basketball is too. Instead of going through all these, I'll tell you there's a couple that jump out to me. One is that like basketball, I think is very clippable and it's very shareable on things like Instagram and TikTok. And I think that's like a big trend going forward. 
I think it's also the games are relatively tight. It's about a two hour performance. I'm not sure how long an F1 race is, but I believe more on the order of four hours. And so it's also like just a longer piece of it. I know that F1 is international and the NBA is becoming very international, but I think the F1 is working the opposite direction where it's been very successful internationally and trying to get in the US market. So the parts to me that I've just struggled with is I don't really see a lot of technology integration aside from the mechanical racing of it, right? Obviously, they're doing a lot of interesting technology mechanically. I don't see it being very clippable or shareable in short form, which I think drives this next generation of fans. You're totally right, though. The long form is really interesting. But it is worth noting that Netflix show never worked. Like Maybe we dropped these valuations by 15%. It's still a mega business. So like those things to me just feel almost like really long races, not moving in that short, fast pace. And we talked about the seven on seven soccer. It feels the opposite of all those. That's where I'm going with that. Mm, Yeah. Okay. So I think the long form in this case is super important, but you said for argument's sake, drop the valuation by 15. They're still incredibly valuable business. And I think you touched on all those. I think it's extremely international. I think you get a lot of people that, that show up to the races. Sponsorship money is one of their main drivers of revenue, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's totally an an interesting point. I just think it's one of those old school type businesses, a lot of money coming in. It almost reminds me of horse racing to some degree, right? It's it's closed off, but again, it's an upper class sport. It's the barrier to entry to start racing is really high, which I think is part of the elusiveness to it. I think the whole model of the sport is interesting. I know the purse for some of these races can be really big. I think that's the number two revenue generator behind sponsorships. So again, very different than the NBA, but has just been around for so long. It has that staying power, but still I'm with you. Like when you're talking about orders of several billion, as far as the entire racing valuation, I've even heard uh, Alpine, I think is one of the fastest growing. I think they're fifth on the list, right? So they might be up there with the Red Bull and, uh, and Mercedes and Ferrari fairly quickly. So we'll see, but you're right. The numbers are shocking considering they go against of what you and I have discussed as one of the main reasons why the leagues like the NBA are so fast growing. Yeah. And I think both things can be true, right? I think that's one thing that I'm trying to think about here is like this idea that the NBA might be a bigger, more eyeballs on it league. It reminds me of businesses too, right? It's like, Some businesses have high margin products. Some businesses have low margin products. And so this could be more of the high margins type product. And NBA could be more of a low margin product. And that could just be the path of it. And then obviously the revenue splits between all these different people. One thing I'm like, I also think about in society is the ability to attend something and have a day and really enjoy it. The F1 NASCAR, especially, I know NASCAR very much so, like the crashes are part of the draw. The being there for four hours, five hours, six hours, having beers, watching the prelims and all that, like it's just a giant cookout and you're just having beers watching racing it's not about you know you wouldn't really do that nba summer league which you and i uh, go to almost every year is similar to that nascar feeling where you're just there there's just games on all day yeah there's the the big zion game or something like that but just being there for a relatively affordable ticket having a bunch of beers with your pals watching the race and then making that show move around the country is really powerful thing too that we haven't really talked about is just being like potentially better than everything else going on in that weekend for that demographic. And F1 might index really well in that. It also index really well internationally. And it might be just more higher margin business too. And then boom, all of a sudden it starts to to be quite the business. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting. There's, I think there's going to be a common theme, even in today's show, of like kind of some paradoxes or some anti-patterns of what we talked about in the past, but those are all good points. Yeah. I think like, 
it's worth noting, I think part of the excitement of Crosshouse Dow going down this journey is we're all made up of Jerry's that are just intelligent, excited about fan ownership, excited about the, the business of sports and want to just be involved in it. And I think part of this is learning in, in public as well, just saying, okay, like we have our theories, but that doesn't, doesn't make them necessarily right, but let's learn and adapt and let's get feedback from listeners and whatnot and grow it. I want to touch on one trend. And I do think the trend that jumps out to me, which I did add is storytelling is king. It's a little, it's obviously connected a little bit with algorithmic media and metric optimization. Algorithmic media in this context is a little bit different. Like we tend to think about that as being like a TikTok algorithm driving content to my feed. But similarly, there's an algorithm on Netflix, which is going to draw trending shows to the top of a list, which is going to get momentum, which then makes it go viral and makes it go into Twitter, et cetera. And so that is another form of a different type of algorithmic content as well. So I thought those two kind of jumped out me as trends. Uh, any disagreements on those two trends? No, I hadn't previously thought of algorithmic media, but storytelling is king. I'd be interested to see the the biggest shift in interest from a sport year over year based in the US. I have to imagine F1 is up there simply because Drive to Survive. I know that's what got a ton of people watching, wanting to attend, caught a brief part of the race. I think in Nashville, when I was there, you have them coming to the US. That's been a huge driver. So again, the storytelling component, I think that show specifically does an amazing job. So I certainly agree with the storytelling is king trend. All right. Let's move to the next story. Pat McAfee joins ESPN among mass, mass layoffs. I know that uh, a lot of ESPN personalities got the axe, including Jeff Van Gundy and not Mark Jackson, I think, if I recall that correctly. How do you feel about keeping Mark and letting go Jeff? Feeling okay about Yeah, that's that? tough. I just view them as a package deal. So it's like from a fan perspective, that's tough. Probably contracts involved. Probably did a lot of research on the draw that one of those had maybe individually. But yeah, so I, I can't say it should have been Mark or should have kept Jeff, whatever. They just seem like two peas in a pod, right? So it's just, it's going to be yeah. weird now. Who's Mark going to call games with? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Pat joins so he goes from punter for the colts to podcaster to part-time professional wrestler and now he's part of the espn family and in may he had actually walked i didn't know this he walked away from a four-year 120 million dollar contract he signed with FanDuel in 2021 which it's got to be way more money than he ever made in the nfl in order to sign a new deal with espn so you got to imagine that espn deals even bigger call it 200 million plus the details are still unclear but he's going to continue his show they're going to be broadcasting onto youtube as well as espn espn plus you know he'll be doing guest appearances on different ESPN properties. And this is not the first time that he had dropped out of existing deals. He actually left early with Barstool Sports, Westwood One, Dazan. I always get that wrong. D-A-Z-N. Dazone, right? Dazone. Is that what it is? So he's actually moved on from multiple things inside of it. So he now joins ESPN. It seems like a big bet in the shifting media space. So the question I want to ask you is, are the old kind of alt broadcast the new mainstream? And does it even make sense to have someone like Pat on ESPN? What's your take on that? This goes again, this is what I alluded to earlier. This goes against every kind of theory, trend, idea I have with the way that media is going. So it's crazy. If I'm Pat, obviously there's a huge asterisk by this thing because we don't know the details of the deal. But I think owning your content, owning the vertical, reaching new audience, getting your own sponsorship deals, all that is just like, that's the direction we're heading. And massive personalities are actually doing the opposite of what he's doing, right? Taking audience with them to develop their own audience, in some cases, even their own platforms, right? So this is odd. It's got to be the devils in the details, right? It has to be because of this deal is going to be so large. He couldn't pass it up. So I, I don't think that there's any 
mystery there comes with a new shocker. But yeah, going in the reverse of what I think most people are doing. And also I think what I would do as a content creator, obviously I, we have nowhere near the audience that he has, but I think again, owning the audience, owning your community, being responsible for your own kind of brand deals seems to be a much higher margin and particularly a much more lucrative option for a lot of these content creators. So again, sound like a broken record. Until I know the details of the deal, it's hard to say. It probably came down to money, of course. But I thought it was interesting when I read in the first part. Getting hired, probably signing a huge contract. I think amidst all the layoffs is also interesting too. They're cutting a bunch of people and bringing him on. If I'm ESPN, they're probably taking that bet of bringing all those people with him. Maybe even some partnership and sponsor opportunities with them. Probably capture as much of that market as they possibly can. But again, not what I would be doing. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I was trying to think through of what Pat did, like selfishly, and I admit this sort of vulnerably. So I was like, man, like he started just a, a basic podcast. He was a relatively a no-name punter. He wasn't really a notable punter in the NFL when he played. I mean, he was good, but I'm thinking of the guy that, that is now, I think, in prison with the, the punt <laughs> god or whatever. Like that guy had actually drone. He played at San Diego State, and then he got in trouble, and I think he's in prison. But he actually went viral and was like this n- very notable punter that people were super excited about. Pat was never at that level uh, of punter in terms of notoriety. And I was like, what did he do? And I was like, he, his show's interesting. It's okay. It's not great. He's covering the news. Yeah, he, you know, he has a tank top. He's a little boisterous. But I realized he has really unique stories. He knows Peyton Manning really well. He obviously played in the NFL for a long time. And he built up this deep relationship with, I think it was AJ Hawk and Aaron Rodgers and those guys. And I feel Aaron Rodgers and AJ just hanging out on his show for an hour at a time, hour, two hours, and just being real. And Aaron Rodgers not wanting to go through the ESPN reporters and not the Green Bay Packer reporters and just going direct to Pat to get his message out was a huge appeal to the show. It was like, I've watched most of Pat's show, mostly listening to what Aaron Rodgers has to say about things. And I was like, man, like, again, he probably took the bag. So none of this actually matters. But I'm like, does Aaron Rodgers, let's say Aaron Rodgers was 10 years younger. Does he still go on to Pat's show and still just spit the absolute truth, knowing that Pat has is not subservient to some broader network? I don't think so. Does AJ Hawk on there? Probably. But was anyone there for AJ? Not really. So this direct going to the consumer and not having to deal with the ESPN, Joe Rogan did the same thing by going to Spotify. Spotify has been very hands-off, allegedly, of saying, you can talk about whatever you want, have whatever guests. We literally just want you to exclusively host your podcast on there. It's allegedly what he, he claims on his, in his own show, that it's been a great working relationship. But is ESPN going to have that same approach? And so to me, I, what I'm seeing is Pat leaning into taking the bag, which I think he should totally do. But his raw show, I think, is going to do worse in the ESPN world. And then I see ESPN yes. making a shift and saying, we're going to bet on this sort of like direct to the fans type medium and, and taking these personalities. But I don't think people are going to join over there because I don't think they're going to be like, oh, I'm going to go get an ESPN cable subscription now because Pat's over there. Part of the reason that Pat's whole thing worked was because of the way that he distributed went direct. So it's this direction. So I think it's actually reminding me of like brackish water and that brackish water is where you have salt water and then the ocean and natural water from a river or lake combining. And it's actually really interesting is that for the record, there's certain organisms that live only in brackish water. But generally speaking, it's uh, often an area that's a bit from an ecosystem turbulent, for lack of a better word, because it's sort of either. So if you're a saltwater fish, you can't really spend too much time because it might turn into fresh water on you and vice versa. So it's just like a, a strange little dead zone between the two places. 
And I just sense that ESPN's turning their ship to lean into that. And if you guys really want to go hard on that, I think you need to go even further and imagine a world where there's zero cable subscriptions and you got to really embrace that reality. And I see both parties kind of splitting the difference. And I just suspect that this isn't really that interesting. I don't think JJ Redick being on these NBA shows is like that interesting. Like it's a paradox. And I understand both parties are making rational decisions. But when I zoom up and hey, where will this all land in five years? I think we'll just be like, oh yeah, Pat McAfee, he's an analyst on ESPN. His show tatered off because ESPN inevitably killed the YouTube stream, which then lost his direct access, which meant people like Aaron Rodgers. And then the next crop of people, they're not going to like, I'm thinking of the young quarterbacks that are coming in the league. They're not going to jump on Pat McAfee's show to do break. They're just going to do Instagram lives and they're just, they're going to go direct. It's, I totally get the business move. It's interesting. Pretty pessimistic on, on both sides. It reminds me of Tony Hawk actually had a similar thing with pro skater franchise. I think at the time, right? Again, one of the top skaters, but skateboarding wasn't what it was today. The small studio developing Tony Hawk's pro skater got bought out by a larger one, if I'm not mistaken. And they offered, I think, half a million or maybe a million bucks to buy Tony Hawk's royalties on top of what he'd already been paid for the game. And he said at that point in his life, that was more money than he'd ever thought about he would ever earn from skateboarding. He said he might have earned 100000 in prize money out throughout his total career. And here they are coming off for him either half a million or a million bucks. He said he felt long and hard, but he was like, look, I'm going to continue skateboarding. I have some other endorsement deals. I'm not, I don't really care about the money thing too much. I want to keep the royalties. And as you can imagine, that is worth way more than half a million bucks today. So I, like, again, without knowing the bag size, it just has, he probably has to prepare for this is it. Cause it's really tough to go back. Once you lose that, once you lose that like raw and direct to consumer media, it's really tough to go back. It basically has to be like a Joe Rogan cash out situation, which is like, Hey, this is more money than I'll ever need. This is it. I'm agreeing because it is really tough to hop back and forth between these domains. So I, I don't know, like keeping that authenticity, like there could be so many deals that he could get without assigning himself to a major brand like ESPN. If he keeps it in house later on, that doesn't require him to go just fully siloed into one vertical, into one large media conglomerate. Actually, yeah, I don't know. I'm pessimistic as well. It's worth noting too, Pat's 36. Joe Rogan's 55. Joe Rogan's a, he's got, he loves UFC, loves MMA, he loves stand-up comedy. So for me, I forgot how much his contract was with Spotify, hundreds of millions of dollars kind of deal. If I'm Joe, it's, I can take that money. I can make a comedy club. I can just yeah. do UFC stuff. I could set up a, my own jujitsu rings. There's so many other things to go do. If I'm Pat, I'm like, oh, shit, dude, I'm 36. Like he's already just signed that $120 million. Like he already making these big contracts. It does seem like, again, we don't know any of the details. And so it's just hundred percent speculating, but it does feel like there was an opportunity to invest in yourself. And there's a world where if Pat was ambitious enough that he had a path to build the new ESPN if he wanted it, which would be billions of dollars done really well. He just might want to record for two hours a day and be done. And that's that, which I, again, totally respect. But it, yeah. it does just strike me as there's a lot of Rogan in this. And yet Rogan, I think, has a very different whole situation going on with what he can and do. And he's 20 years later on in life and he's got kids and all, all that stuff. So that was his cash out moment. Right. right. Yeah. So the one thing I do want to touch on is that there's some trends here. I put athlete empowerment slash storytelling is king. The reason I touch athlete empowerment it's just worth noting that these athletes 
because we think about sports reporters and sports journalism broadly, it's like Pat was able, he didn't come in with any of that. Even if he went to college for it and studied it for four years, like he didn't know what he was doing. He just had a network of people that were willing to come on his show and just hang out and, and do that. And it just reminds me that like athletes have even more power, especially in going direct with media. And we've seen obviously different things like, I forgot the name of some of the platforms, Uninterrupted, I think LeBron's platform. It's like these platforms have an opportunity. These guys are so influential and bring in so many eyeballs that especially if you can tap into the network, you can go do so many other things. So it was just, it's just an interesting example, I think, of athlete empowerment I wanted to highlight. To me, it's athlete empowerment. And I would argue that storytelling is king. Maybe shouldn't even be there. I think... When I think of storytelling, we just talked about Drive to Survive at length. I was talking recently at length about Last Chance Shoe with the basketball. Like that East LA Community College is 15 minutes from my house and I didn't know it existed. And now the whole entire country knows it exists. So that to me is like the storytelling, like that essence. Those kind of shows could argue is like, yeah, sure, it's content. I don't know how much. Athlete empowerment, absolutely. For all the reasons you mentioned, you're like, what? You asked at the top of the segment, why? Pat McAfee, like why his show? And I think it's as simple as that. Like the dude has stories from his football career. He has enough connections. Those small anecdotes, it's like he's already at an immediate advantage for even people like you and I to just hop in because there is a, some sort of name associated with it. Even if it's not direct, it's like, hey, I have Aaron Rodgers on the show. Like totally. That's when you talk about, when you talk about life after football, life after basketball and setting yourself up to earn generational wealth well after your career that's athlete empowerment and he used that to his advantage as he should i, I totally agree with that trend hats off to pat although i would totally wrestle pat i think i'd give him a, a good match i don't care how much lift let's go what world you're living in but pat, let's pat, go I'll give you that biz we're gonna shift gears <laughs> back into racing pun fully intended want to talk about this nascar street race in chicago this is super cool so NASCAR put on a real street race in Chicago. It was the first one in the 75-year history, if I'm not mistaken. And so <laughs> ask a simple question. What if you had a NASCAR race in kind of an urban metropolitan area, like downtown Chicago? And so when COVID hit, it was obviously you couldn't race. It leaned in heavy into digital. They built this racing simulation out of a, like LiDAR and street racing. I think they sent, if I'm not mistaken, two... It blocked Lakeshore, Michigan at the heart of Chicago to basically take, gather data around that and crowdsource what the streets would look like and how to actually pull this off, which is an incredible thing. And so using the mix of their racing data and actually what they picked up from sending cars down there and actually blocking off streets, they modify the ideal track turns, straightaways. And like I said, essentially we're able to crowdsource the data. One interesting quote that I saw in there was like, what other sport is actually using tools like this and how have fans actually help with kind of the core product, in this case, racing. So just an incredible thing to, to actually see them pull off. Also, another anecdote I want to do, like just shout out to NASCAR. I recently met with Nick Rend, who is the managing director at NASCAR for gaming and esports, who did a Roblox partnership Numbers are astronomical, got people under 16. I think a lot, I think 80% of them watched their first race after the Roblox integration. So anyway, NASCAR is doing amazing stuff, specifically with the race. What were your thoughts when you saw that? What was the thoughts of doing it in a kind of a downtown metropolitan environment like Chicago? 
Obviously, F1 has races there. NASCAR is much harder to pull off than F1 for a lot of different reasons. But what are your takes on that technological integration, crowdsourcing data from fans to actually pull off the Chicago street race? Yeah, I love this story on so many dimensions for all the reasons you just said. I don't like NASCAR, partly because of just that monotonous of the same track over and over. And I don't really watch either racing, but I certainly... My head will turn more towards F1 and my head will turn more even so for me personally and some of the dirt off-road stuff. I'd like the dynamicness of the course where it's like, hey, there's a mud spot there. And like, how did each car handle it? I find more that I can think about like that, the more I like about it. So I love this idea of putting that in the streets of Chicago. It's obviously, again, it's NASCAR, so it is still a little bit loopy. But even just seeing that change and how everything's moving along, I really just love all the components of them experimenting with this. I like this transition from doing the simulation to making it real world. I love bringing the fans and how can we optimize the race? It's just like, when I read this story, I was just so excited about it on so many dimensions of just continuing to innovate, especially in a challenging sport to innovate in. You have a sort of a bread and butter. And this, I think you said this the first time in 75 years that they've ever done this. And so it's like, you have no idea how that race could go. And I lived in Chicago for a while at one point. And I think if I was a Chicagoan, I would have wanted to come down and check something out. I don't think I would have stayed for you know much longer than 30 minutes or something like that. But I think it's an exciting idea and experience to go do for the city itself. So I love it. It's an A plus for me on multiple dimensions. I saw that you have three year agreement. What can they do with it? I hope both sides opt in. I hope we see more of this. I just love it on so many fronts. Yeah. I want to zoom out again because I mentioned this when we were going through the beat, but NASCAR continuously does things like this that is mind blowing. I remember they were one of the first, and this sounds crazy, but that took merchandising to the next level. NASCAR developed a much wider range of merch. I think they're considered the first ones to do that because it was very like driver centric. So there's a lot of different jackets, hats. Again, I know that sounds like table stakes now, but they were the first to do that. And fast forward to the digital age, their Web3 team is one of the biggest in racing. I think one of the biggest in sports in the US. They said that the, I remember Nick was explaining this when I was talking to him, but I think the 16U is one of the hardest demographics to like understand they quite are literally are kids and so we don't really know what kind of things they want to look at or, or what exactly catches on so instead of trying to figure that out partnering with a group partnering with a company like roblox to get in front of them is just like super interesting trying these things out in chicago just so much credit for the innovation we give the nba a lot of credit of course but nascar might have them beat as far as what they're doing and trying to grab new audience members i just think that's so cool you don't really think there's a lot of room for digitizing things or pushing the product forward from a technological perspective, but they're all in and it's paying dividends. You see it with these partnerships and these activations that they're doing. I think it's just, it's incredible. And that NASCAR is great. I have to pick up a favorite driver. Yeah, I, I don't know many of them, but yeah, kudos to them. It's just exciting. I touched on some trends. I, I put maybe like technology integration, I think is probably the big jump out here. Certainly the impetus to them doing something here, a touch of fan engagement, but any thoughts on any trends? It's quite literally those two. I remember in reading it, they talked about the physics engine that they used to do the racing simulation with the fans. And it was supposedly perfect physics, right? So using that crowdsource data to update, that's totally a fan engagement thing. They're just racing, having fun in the simulation, but they're actually using the data points and feature points from the track to apply it to the actual race. That's super cool. And then technological integration blocking off those streets, I think in the middle of the night to gather again, more feature points and more data using LIDAR. That's incredible technology and awesome. creation example. So as of time of recording, we are 
apparently something like 36 hours away from Wemby's debut in NBA Summer League. It got me thinking, is Wemby the greatest prospect since LeBron? He certainly has the hype that he is. But I thought we actually should like debate for a second, is he actually the greatest prospect since LeBron? And so in order to pull this little debate off, we need to also consider that we can't assess any of their actual NBA performance in it. So it has to be like on draft day, is this guy, does anyone even come close to being better than Wemby in terms of prospect? What's your quick reaction? Absolutely not. I can't even think of anyone that's remotely close. So I put together a quick list. And so I'll read it off for our listeners and I'll do it relatively fast. Stop me if you want to discuss any of them. But Zion, I think Zion had some pretty high prop. Zion, AD, Ben Simmons, Dwight Howard, Kevin Durant, Greg Oden, Derek Rose, John Wall, Kyrie Irving, Bradley Beal, Andrew Wiggins, Joel Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, John Morant, Anthony Edwards. If you did not go number one overall, you have to just be off this list. Agreed. Agreed. Even like KD, right? Good prospect, but he's immediately off the list. Zion is interesting because I think that he had almost as many eyes of anticipation correct, as Wimby, but it wasn't as a prospect for basketball. I want to try to use my words carefully. I'm saying something really specific. I think it was because him going viral, his dunks, Right, like I don't think as a bona fide prospect of will this guy be the next LeBron? I think right. he had, from a height perspective, he had it. But I think it's because people wanted to see him do the 360 windmills at Summer League and not because yeah. they actually thought he could be a LeBron, a Michael Jordan, a thing like that. So I thought about Zion. That was the only one that came to mind. Wait, you really thought, thought about, about Zion? What's that? You thought about Zion? Yeah. It's another classic flex pun. And that one yeah. went over, over. Would you say life. that he had the the appetite to be one of the top prospects of all time? Oh yes, yes, yes. He was hungry to get to the league. Hungry to get to that league. Yes, we were hungry to see him play for sure. No, I like. I think his hoop mixtape. I couldn't wait. But again, I think when you think about what a prospect means, right? It's like the future of the NBA. And don't get me wrong, he was still a great prospect, right? Regardless, but I think the. I don't want to conflate it because of the hype of even personal hype to, to see him play. But anytime there's even a shadow of a doubt that you might not go, like everyone knew he was going number one, but I heard Ja maybe seeking number yep. one. I even heard RJ Barrett who went at three. So I, it's I, I, true. Yeah. to be honest, I don't, I don't think it's even close. I think it was LeBron. and then Wimby. I did think the one name that jumped out to me that I had forgotten about was Dwight Howard. I agree, though, it wasn't, it didn't have that like fever pitch of Zion or Wemby. Coming out of high school, elite player. He played an MVP level for many years. He certainly, obviously, he had a really rough backside of his career. But Dwight, when I saw that in the list, I was like, ah, Dwight is close. But to your point, that sort of excitement as well. Zion had the excitement, but not the prospect. I think Dwight maybe had a little bit of the prospect stuff. So like, hey, is this the next Shaq? Is this the next great big man? But Wemby kind of hits both. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's Wemby by Landstock. All right. Let's touch on some NBA free agency moves here. What was your favorite free agency signing? Any team, any reason? Honestly, I think free agency has been a snooze, man. Yeah, for sure. So then Bradley Beal to the Suns. 
I know it's not a free agency signing, but it's effectively a free agency. I signing. thought I think that was the most exciting. However, week plus later, even as a Wizards fan, I still don't know what to think. I'm loving the pick swaps we get with the Suns. I don't think we had a chance of even becoming a top five seed with him in the next few years, based on the way their contracts were set up. It was the worst contract in basketball, hands down. But I do love Bradley Beal, and I honestly, I think anytime you get those super teams, right? Like I don't care. You love to hate them, right? Like, I'm excited to see the Suns play. So I think a lot of people are sleeping on Tingus Pingus, man. I think that was a really interesting one. Do you remember that by Cole Rockport? Yeah. The next draft, Tingus Pingus. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm excited to see that as well. I think he shows flashes of a really solid player. It'd be interesting to see how they fit in. I think a lot of people are hating on that. I'm not as bearish on that moves. But in general, the guy, this year in particular, free agent has not been exciting for me at all. Yeah. And the new CBA is a big reason for that. They're trying to bust the, the super team stuff. It's certainly interesting. Yeah. I like, gosh, my my journey with Russell Westbrook has been so interesting, but... <laughs> I love the guy now. I used to absolutely hate him. I've gone back and forth so many times. It's unbelievable. But I like the Clippers locking him in for that amount. He still has flashes. He's just not good. I think that him and being as bad as he is, is overhyped. Ty- they got him for dirt yeah. cheap. Why not? Kudos to Ty Lue, man. I think he needs to get some props. It was so obvious, I think, on how to use Russell, but no one seemed to be able to get through to him. And LeBron wasn't able to do it. And his different coaches in these different locations weren't able to get through to him. And somehow, whether it was Kawhi, Paul George, or Tyron Lue, and I'm going to give the credit to Ty Lue just because he's the head coach, that they got him to come in the game. And there's really great videos, maybe we can find it in the show notes, of breaking down the changes that he did in the Clippers. And it was basically get out in transition, attack the basket, if you don't see something, bring it out, kick off the offense, especially with the second unit. And then if you're in the offense, don't take a three unless it's late in the shot clock and attack the rim. It's That's just obviously what he should be doing every single time. And for whatever reason, the Clippers figured out how to unlock that and just convince him to actually go do that. And it's great because he could have another five years in his career if he just focuses on that. And, and he's seemingly on that track now, which it was comical. I'd turn into Laker games just to watch how bad his decision-making was. And it, it's it, amazing what he was able to do with that. And wasn't it like a, was it a two-year eight mil? Like that, like, yeah, was something like, on that order. Yeah. Two-year seven mil. Yeah. You get to stay in LA and it's it's great. We'll see how it plays out, but I love the signing. Let me touch on mine. So I was looking at a lot of lists and the Bucks continued to be listed as like big free agency winners because Lopez and Middleton were resigned. Yep. Like, as a Bucks fan, like I love Chris Middleton. I love Brooke Lopez. I, I do think they got some nice value with Middleton. I do think Lopez's contract was a bit expensive for a 35-year-old with some back injuries. I love them signing Robin Lopez. And I know I'm not trying to make this into a Bucks podcast, although don't hate that idea. But I don't think they're the main winners. I think the Suns are certainly the winners. I saw some other lists say that the Warriors were with getting Draymond. No, thanks, man. Austin Reeves going back to the Lakers. I thought that's actually a really low-key important move for them as well. So if I had to pick, I'm going to go Suns with Bradley Beal. I love Bradley Beal. I think him and Kevin Durant and Booker are, they're just, that's an unbelievable trio. Like, just like when I think of like the ability to ISO score those three, oh my God. Yeah, but we've seen this in the past, right? Like, how do you think something like this differs from a Kyrie Harden and KD Nets team? Yeah. So I think Kyrie is incredibly talented. He's also a point guard, which I think is a challenging spot to be. Harden's also a point guard. So there's a clashing immediately at the point guard position. And I think both of them need the ball in their hands to operate. Kevin Durant, as we saw in Golden State, 
he can do whatever he wants. And as much crap as he gets for some of his takes and stuff on Twitter and sort of his behavior in that regard, on the court, the guy will adapt to any situation he wants or needs. And in most cases, he actually defers a little too much and doesn't take enough game-winning shots and whatnot in those situations. So I'm not worried about Kevin. Devin, I think he needs the ball in his hands a little bit more maybe than Beal or, or Durant does. But he's willing to work off of Durant. He wants to build the super team. So I think he's probably the most motivated. We saw that with Dwayne Wade in Miami with the Heatles. And I, I don't know how Bradley Beal's going to fit in, but I also don't think he needs the ball in his hand either. So there's a world here where you're bringing the ball up, you're getting into some set. All three of those can knock down an open setup shot. They all three can slash. They all can post ISO. So part of me feels like that combination is far materially better than having essentially two point guards in this small wing, small in terms of like weight. I just feel like that dynamic is fundamentally better because all three of those, they can just say- It's still going to feel kind of crowded on the wing though. If you have a buckets of players, you have Booker and Beal are very similar. KD, it's like, it's just going to feel, I don't know. They, I feel like we can't underestimate how much they still have to figure it out. They should have at least a season of figuring it out. I'm not sure that they should win the NBA finals, but I agree that if I own the Suns, I'd be like, hey, I'm not going to blow this up for another year or two. Like we need to see a year and a half of kind of data before we touch anything. But I do think that... The way I would coach it, and I'm not a great coach, but the way I'd coach it is what's our matchup? Who's the worst defender of guarding Durant, Beal, and Booker? And that's who's running the offense tonight. I'm thinking about Milwaukee just because I know the lineup well. So it's like you probably have Giannis on Durant. You probably have Middleton on Beal, I guess. And then you have Crowder or something like a Javion Carter, who's now a bull. So I got, you put some sort of bulldogish defender on the team, a Wesley Matthews, I guess on Booker. And like, okay. Guess we're running the whole offense through Booker tonight because he's got the best matchup and he's just going to attack and facilitate. And Giannis is going to have to help, which means your aunt's open for a corner three. And then the next game, you go and play someone else like the Lakers or something like that. And you have an entirely different lineup. And you're like, okay, who's Austin Reeves guarding? It's like, all right, he's guarding Beal. Like, all right, Beal's the main point of offense tonight. Let's go. That to me is just, oh, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. We'll see. I feel like it's closer to a net situation from not all that long ago than I think people are giving it credit for. I think all those have had the luxury of operating independently. I just, I feel like it's going to take some meshing. It can't be done. We've seen it go both ways. We've seen, yeah. we've seen it go the Nets direction. We've seen it go the Heat direction. The Heat actually took a while to gel. They took a while. They took a while. Yeah. But I do think so, the Heat's a little different where you actually had a guard, a forward, and a big, which was a really yeah. interesting balance and Bosch was clearly a level below those two as well so there was some pecking order stuff too that i think that they just had to figure out but i would include the warriors in that mix too that big three celtics team you had kg a big you had ray allen street shooter and you had paul pierce so i think that big three obviously works a lot better when it's spread i just i think those are very similar player types but it can work I'm not ready. I, I just think this looks more Warriors esque than Heatles and more than you threw the Nets in there. Doesn't feel Nets to me, but. You mentioned favorites. Are the Suns the, the favorites to win this year? I haven't looked at the odds, but I would put them up there. Obviously, the Nuggets need to be up there. I think the Bucks should be up there. Boston should be up there. Those kind of four or five teams feel like the. But the Suns feel the most well suited for that class of teams. Yeah. I have them fourth. Bucks have... number one. Okay. Yeah, I have the Nuggets. I have the Bucks ahead of them. I have Nuggets, Celtics. I have Bucks, and then I'm going to go Suns. I think the Suns are ahead of the Celtics. They're probably ahead of the Bucks as well. I think. 
Yeah, I guess I, I'm just going to re-say mine. I noted on your list. Yeah, I'm the fourth favorite. What is interesting, thinking about this, it feels, you know, famous last words, of course, but it feels less open next year coming up. Like, I can't see the Heat pulling something like that off again. No. I don't see... They get Dame, maybe, but they're going to they're gonna have to get rid of so many key pieces that I don't think... A Dame-Bam-Jimmy trio with vet minimums around them... That, that doesn't get it done. I like this Dame to Boston idea. I think getting rid of Jalen Brown and getting Dame in there and being able to keep Porzingis or something like that would be really interesting. Very dangerous Boston team if they could do that. Because Jalen Brown really just fell apart. And so if you're able to get a player like Dame who only steps up in moments like that, paired yeah. with Jason Tatum, who is maybe MVP caliber, he certainly would not be with Dame there. But this young, super talented, long guy, that team is really nice. Really nice. Dude, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. Yeah, I think the Suns trial period is enough to not have me put them in the, yeah, that's in fair. the top three. But there's a, after that, I feel like there's a huge gap. Yeah, I mean, you got like Sixers. Lakers, yeah, the, Lakers, Sixers, Sixers, I mean, dude, Sixers just can't get it done. Yeah, Lakers, no. Our early hot take, by the way, we haven't done our NBA preview episode, which won't be for a, a few months now. But I'm starting to call it now, pre-summer league pre-hype i just like last year i got on the sacramento kings early i'm getting on the oklahoma city thunder early this year oh that's them, no I, that's i don't think that's putting them be fifth that in the west i don't think that's going to be that hot they did sga is becoming superstar Dude. level mm. who did they pick when the draft? i liked the draft oh chet is coming back don't sleep on chet i've completely turned the corner on chet they signed a big euro guy that's super dominant over there I don't know, man. The Kings bandwagon I was on last year, I'm sliding over to the Thunder one this year for my second team of Bucks, first and foremost forever. But that second team, I'm kind of the NBA league pass darling. I think Thunder are going to be that squad for me this year. Yeah. Yeah, league pass darling could be OKC. That's true. All right. Least favorite signing. Least favorite signing. Um, We can do this quick, too. We We don't have to punish them too hard. Yeah. I have the most confusing one. I think I saw Bruce Brown with a two-year 45 mil. Yep. To the Pacers, right? To the Pacers. Pacers are ready to compete. I need some more info. I need some more info. He's good. <laughs> He's good. But 20, 20 mil a year, good? I don't know. Yeah. 20 plus yeah. mil. Mine's the Rockets, man. Paying that much money for Fred Van Fleet and Dylan yeah. Brooks, dude. Yeah. Along an already guard-heavy lineup. I know your boy Jabari's there, but there's just... There's so many guards. There's all they have. Now they have big free agents. They also have big draft picks. Like who's going to touch the ball when, where, how a lot of these contracts, I think Fred Van Vliet, he was a three-year deal. Dylan's a four-year deal. So what happens in three or four years ago? Cause that's when your rookies contracts are going to be expiring too. And so, yeah, it's uh, just unless they go like full on, hey, we're going to play really big, really small ball and we're just going to shoot a ton. And but I don't I, I saw some stat. I can't remember what it was, but it was like looking at the percentages of Fred Van Fleet and Dylan Brooks at the dollars amounts that they make. And it was like just way off the charts of outliers in terms of really poor volume shooting last season specifically compared to the dollars they are going to be making this year. I just like head scratcher for me on that, man. Don't get that one at all. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Let's wrap there. Yep, sounds good. Cool. By the way, how do you like the new format? You good? My luck's looking good. I got a lot of love so far. So people checking it out. It's been good. It's been a good time. The show's format? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Video, 
Yeah, I think that I'm really more curious what the audience thinks. I know obviously we've shifted a little bit away from the kind of the cryptos and the in the Dow pieces of it, more into the sports business, which I think there's a lot of interesting things to cover in there. But a little more mainstream. It's obviously a niche of the mainstream, but I'm curious on that. But generally I've been liking it five episodes in and it's certainly been interesting to record. All right, thanks everybody for checking out episode five of the Krause House podcast. We'll be next week and later dudes. Wag bet. Wag bet.